family. Kate Blaisbrook is our guest today. She's an amazing 30-something who I met through studying her work and through common interests we have, especially around her work about hiring and hiring without bias. She did a tech talk. I, actually, it's a TEDx talk she did called Why Hiring is Broken. It was about six years ago, and it's highly relevant today. Kate's also a Harvard Kennedy School seminar speaker, and that's close to my heart because we share Harvard as a platform for work that we do. More importantly, Kate's just a really smart lady who's progressed her career to the point where now she's making decisions about how to invest in companies simply because they have really good ideas about how to create an even better world. Welcome, Kate Glazebrook. Kate, it's so nice to meet you virtually. You know, your work and reputation are so elevated that I feel as though I already know you to some degree. We have so many common interests. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's honestly an honor. Well, I'm glad you're coming on. And before we jump into your career journey and all those things we do have in common, I want to have you go back and talk a little bit about your childhood and upbringing. I found what I could learn to be quite unique for a young woman of, you know, of your experience. And so tell us a little bit about young Kate. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure how unique it is. I grew up in Sydney in Australia um, to two parents who were really passionate about public policy. Um, my dad's an economist and he works on public transport policy. Uh, and my mum's a general practitioner, so she's a doctor uh, and worked very closely in a bunch of communities, actually very close to where I work now in, in inner city Sydney. She worked with a lot of populations with drug and alcohol abuse challenges uh, and a lot of young women who'd gone through rape crisis centres and a whole host of challenging, you know, settings. And I think I learned from them uh, the power of working on things. From Redfern or across Australia? Yeah, she was mostly working in and around Redfern. That's exactly right. Yeah. I um, there twice, you know. Did you? What did you make of it? Uh, well, the first time I went, I was, I had a little bit of the um, newness of and fear of it. I had not done a lot of in-depth research. I just took the very highlighted information that was shared in the process of actually going there. I was on an economic uh, mission there. Right. And um, there were still needles and things sticking up in the ground. So that was a little bit unsettling for me because even though I've had adult lives, uh, life experiences in cities, I've not actually lived in a city environment. And so that's where I historically would have experienced that type thing. Now the world is such that you see it everywhere. The second yeah. time I went, I went um, pretty much celebrity filled because everybody knew who I was by then. They read my books. They were excited for what I could teach and bring. And I also saw progress. So it felt good to go the second time. And now that I know that your mom has been a part of that and indirectly the work that your dad does contributes to that it just feels even better meeting you <laughs> well thank you yeah I, I was really lucky I think to kind of grow up in an environment where those sorts of things were valued and it's very much shaped the kind of work that I'm passionate about doing um and and the sort of value system that sits behind all of that um so yeah grew up in inner city may not know what we're talking about when we say red fern maybe to save them the google let them know what we're talking about bring them up to speed sure so um so red fern's a part of inner city sydney and it's actually been one of our oldest 
sort of communities in, in Sydney. Um, traditionally, actually, it's been a part of, of Sydney that has a higher concentration of people from First Nations backgrounds, so Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Um, and when we were growing up, you know, there's a part of Redfern called The Block, um, which suffered from sort of pretty immense uh, economic and social um, discrimination and disparities. It was a part of Sydney that, you know, at that time was considered to be quite unsafe um, and largely because there were a lot of people who were living lives that were quite deprived. Um, and that's still unfortunately the case. We, you know, I'm sure many people in the family, if they've paid any attention to Australian politics over the years, know that we have a real problem of, um, of sort of disparities between our sort of white populations and our you know first nations populations in fact gosh it, it you know on some metrics it's like the difference between a sort of developed world and a developing world context um, that's how bad the sort of health and education gaps can be um, and Redfern is in some respects one of the areas that sort of represents the change over time in that Redfern's come a really long time long way in the sort of 30 odd years that I've been on on, on this planet um, though not without continuing challenges but I think one of the exciting things about Redfern is it's also been a part of Australia where uh, local Indigenous populations have been a big part of thinking about what they want that part of the world to look like not just sort of developers coming in and changing the face of that area so um, yeah it looks very different than it did when I was younger but still thankfully has a very strong First Nations um, community that lives in and around there. Thank you for that. And Redfern uh, population and other indigenous populations to Australia have also been highly influential around Australia's approach to uh, ESG and the environment. So Absolutely. I think to be spoken of that these aren't just populations who have a lot of need, they also have a lot to offer. Absolutely. Indigenous knowledge is, you know, it's embarrassing. It's the Australian indigenous population is the sort of longest continuous population in the world. Um, 65,000 years is the sort of best um, best sort of guess. Um, and yet it's taken, honestly, in the last like 10 years for sort of more mainstream Australia to acknowledge that there is this huge wealth of Indigenous knowledge that we can draw on. As you say, um, particularly around environmental issues, like how do we think about managing an environment that survives another 65,000 years. Um, so there's a lot in there, plus there's a lot around sort of um, science and their understanding of botanics and flora and fauna um, and a whole host of other things. But, you know, I feel like we're only just beginning to really truly respect that as something we can learn from as opposed to sort of otherize and say, wasn't that interesting that for that population, they feel that these things go ABC, but actually to say, what can we be learning from your traditions um, that we can bring into our approaches to public policy, to, you know, to the way we run organisations and so forth. So I think it's a really exciting time for Australia. And as some people in your community may know, we're actually, we've got a vote coming up later this year in 2023, a, a big referendum to give um, First Nations people a voice to our constitution. It's a really big issue in Australia and it's so long overdue. So fingers crossed that goes ahead. So your childhood was not that typical. I mean, <laughs> are, I think I shared with you before we actually began this podcast that one of the things I love so much about you, I feel like I'm your auntie now. Uh, one of the things <laughs> I love so much about you, Kate, is that your work is highly topical and your life is highly atypical. Um, and I, I, 
I think that when we consider the influence of your parents and your own uh, personal chosen education on how you work and live today, it's incredible. You've lived in many countries. You've witnessed the differences and similarities between these countries. And while I know you've landed back in Sydney for now, uh, do you ever miss any particular places or lifestyles abroad? And most importantly, what do you think you've learned from living in so many different places? That's a great question. Yeah, there's a lot that I miss. So I've, I've been extremely lucky um, in my life. I um, have traveled a fair bit, but I've also had an opportunity to live, study and, and work abroad. So I guess the sort of first place I did that was Sweden. I did a um, an exchange as part of my undergrad. Um, so I lived in, I went from what was at the time 40 degrees Celsius in Sydney, got on a plane, got off and it was minus 10 degrees Celsius in Sweden. I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Um, but no, I, I love that. And, you know, as, as people may already be able to pick up, um, I was really interested in social welfare policy. So it felt appropriate to go to the, to the Nordic region and learn from them. Um, and then the next place that I that I lived a few years later was Thailand, and I did a bunch of work in Thailand and Myanmar for the UN on sort of education policy. I then moved from there to the States um, for a couple of years and lived up in Boston for a few years and spent a bit of time in DC, and then moved from there to, to London, where I lived for about seven years. So I've been really, really lucky to live in a couple of, of you know, the world's most interesting cities. And I think, you know, one of the things that Australians know is we are on the other side of the world from a lot of other things. It's not sort of on the way anywhere unless you're planning to go to Antarctica. Um, and so, you know, we grow up in Australia knowing that we live not in one of the world's most um, sort of central countries. We're sort of a very lucky country sometimes because we're not, you know, one of the biggest countries in the world. Um, but I do miss the hustle and bustle of big cities like New York and London and, and their kind of very internationalized experiences. We have a lot of multiculturalism in Australia, but, um, you know, those cities really attract loads of people who come and create new things and then leave. And I think what's exciting about Australia is we're starting to get that same vibe um, down here. And so after 10 years abroad coming back, I, I got that. Um, and then I think one of the things that I also miss is um, there's this interesting, I don't know how you feel about this JVH, but the, there's an interesting experience of being an expat because um, I think you're forced to see the world slightly differently when you know you can't take things for granted. You know, it wasn't how you grew up. You start to sort of internalise your environment kind of differently. It forces the brain to work a little bit harder. Um, and I think it also forces a level of humility because you know that this is not your place or it's not the place that you were brought up in. Um, and I think there's something about that um, that, I, that I miss sometimes too, you know, that sort of, that forced reflection that you get when you live in new places. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, where I'm sitting right now, actually in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, you see the desert behind me. Um, it's quite different than where I spend other time in Southern California, but importantly, growing up in North Carolina, the deep South and growing up at a very segregated time in our country for races. When I came to California, it was a totally different experience. So, you know, then doing business in over 35 countries, certainly visiting many of them on a regular basis, you speak dynamically to what's uh, happening uh, for you in terms of the question I asked. I think it opens another question for many people as well. 
because we're having the world brought to us digitally and we're feeling and experiencing that in different ways as well. Um, so yeah, I wanna go back to a couple of things you spoke to. And um, one of them, I think importantly, was around um, talking about immigrant populations and the diversity of Australia. First of all, be thoughtful about what you wish and what you celebrate for, because there's a lot about Australia that's beautiful because of the lack of that, as well as a lot of benefit because of the growth of that. Um, you have uh, grown a lot because you have some of the world's finest universities there as well. You know, when people come to attend your universities, especially people uh, from the eastern part of the world, don't they? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. There's there are these some sometimes these like public policies that I think people institute for one reason and then they end up being super powerful for a whole bunch of others. And one of them was a the Colombo plan, which was a plan, I think it was probably the 70s, early 80s, but it was a plan to sort of open up university spots to people from the, the, the sort of Asia Pacific region, in particular from sort of Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia and, and the subcontinent. And it's ended up becoming one of these like incredibly powerful parts of the Australian community. It's it's helped to diversify the Australian community. A lot of those students have come, been educated and chosen to stay, build businesses in Australia or, or sort of join our labour market um, and or take back uh, some of what they've learnt and experienced in Australia in, in those parts of the world and, and tie us together through trade and, and, and diplomacy and a whole bunch of other things, cultural connection in a way that we wouldn't have had previously. And so what started out as a sort of, hey, could we, you know, open up our universities to parts from people in the region has ended up becoming this whole cultural change, I think, for Australia in a really meaningful way. And it's something I think we need to protect. Um, you know, we, we can't rest on our laurels, I think, as Australia as being a place people want to be. Um, we we really have to be thinking about how do we make Australia a truly welcoming place. And, you know, like all countries, we've gone through phases of being open to that and, and not. We've got some pretty horrendous <laughs> history of, of immigration policy not always being what we would want it to be, despite the fact that one in four Australians grew up um, elsewhere. So it's actually, you know, there is there are a lot of contradictions about Australia, but a lot of good things too. Well, I've got quite a few family members who've chosen to move to Australia and their kids have been born Australian citizens, uh, as, because as you know, uh, not necessarily through my side of my family, but my husband is British born. And so some of his family members have moved to Australia by choice uh, and, and a couple quite recently. I'd like you to move forward a little bit, Kate, you know, uh, tell us about the company Applied, which you helped found and um, you know, I enjoy a particular interest in it. So if you can share the circumstances that led you to co-founding Applied, where you served as CEO, it'll be quite fun for me. Sure. Well, this is definitely an area where our interests massively overlap. Um, though I will say, you know, I came to co-founding Applied and, and, and running it with a sort of scary lack of true knowledge of the depth of, of recruitment, the way you brought that to, to the industry. So maybe the story goes a little bit along the lines of, um, I originally trained as a sort of classical economist and worked in government and was very lucky to do that. I then went to the States and, and spent a bunch of time retraining in, in behavioral economics. So thinking about how the brain works and how that motivates us, what drives our decisions, some of the ways in which our decisions get 
you know, skewed or biased in ways that we don't intend, um, the difference between conscious and unconscious decision-making. And I was really, really lucky to work with a couple of people um, like Iris Bonnet, who's um, a, a wonderful researcher. She's a behavioral scientist who works from Harvard, um, who specializes in gender equality and how we understand behavioral science. Did you know that Iris and I work together? I'm uh, the new chair of the Women's Leadership Board, so I work directly with her for that. I'm, I mean, I do know that and and I just couldn't be more pleased. I, you know, when you have those moments, I'm one of those people for whom the life is its richest when two people you love and admire know one another or meet one another or have some way of working together. And, you know, we've only just met JBH, but I have a lot of admiration for you. So, and love and love dearly, Iris. So there's a lot, there's a lot to be loved there. You know, you just think the world gets, when the world gets small in those beautiful ways, because um, yeah, magic happens in those interactions, I think. So um, the Women's Leadership Board's very lucky to have you. So yeah, I was really lucky to meet Iris. Um, I studied a lot around, um, bias and discrimination and my interest in it lay in the fact that I'd kind of spent a lot of time in education policy looking at ways of making access to education which we know to be this huge trajectory change for people in their lives you know access to higher quality education can completely change what what you get in the future and we know sadly that's at the moment very very tied to your economic socioeconomic and racial backgrounds so I was sort of studying more of this stuff I then moved to the United kingdom to work for an organization called the behavioral insights team um, which is a team that specializes in using behavioral science and knowledge of psychology for social good so worked a lot with governments there on how they could better design and deliver public policy that actually works for real people that reflects the reality of how we actually live our lives you know we're often busy and things that governments do don't always you know, meet us where we are as humans in, in our busy and constrained lives. Uh, and while there, I sort of became obsessed with this area of research, which you know super well, um, and, and I'm sure many of your family do too, because they're drawn to you for these kinds of reasons. But, you know, the reality is that two equally qualified people could apply for the same job and you change one small demographic feature, be it their gender, particularly their race, even where they grew up, uh, one university mention or, you know, a mention of having been on the LGBTQ plus community at university versus some other innocuous community. And you can suddenly massively change the likelihood that they get that job, regardless of the fact that none of those things are predictive of where they're going to be the best to do that job. And I just couldn't shake <laughs> all of this research. And I went back and realized we've been running these studies that test this rate of discrimination test essentially that bias we've been doing them since the 1970s and what's most scary is that even though I think since the 70s it's pretty clear that social attitudes and social norms around equality have changed a lot and we've had huge changes in legislation that outlaw discrimination and and a whole bunch of things we're actually not seeing a change in the rate of discrimination against particularly people of colour, um, but other groups as well in labour markets. And we still see this huge skew toward hiring people that look like us or that look the part, whatever that part may be. So if you're you know, applying to be an early childhood educator, that tends to be a woman and actually men get discriminated against in that setting. Uh, though, of course, as many people would know, in, in most higher paying jobs that that looking the part tends to look like looking like a man and probably a white man um, with a particular educational and, and sort of socioeconomic background. So I became obsessed with that. Um, and one of the things that we had at the Behavioral Insights team was this small venture arm uh, with a small amount of grant funding. And if you pitched in an idea, 
for a product or a service that you felt, you know, brought behavioural science to bear for social good, um, but that might represent something that could spin out into its own organisation, that they wanted to hear about it. And, and I guess I had the, looking back, the naivety, uh, audacity, I don't know, um, to say, you know, this is something that I think we should do something about. And I think that in addition to the amazing work of organisations all over the world to try and remove discrimination and improve equality, I wonder if there's something in the technology that people use every day um, that shapes the behaviours and could we use that technology to remove the risk of bias so that just like we use our phones and apps and all kinds of technologies to help us get where we want to go faster and more efficiently and help us make better decisions, could we do the same thing but with an explicit goal of removing bias from this hiring process? And so that was the sort of genesis um, of the idea. And they they were like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Why don't you have a crack? So I got a small amount of grant funding and me and my co-founder, Theo Felgett, um, started running experiments. So running full-blown randomized control trials, not unlike what you would run if you were you know, putting a new drug onto the market because we had this high standard that we needed to be able to prove statistically that we could improve the outcome if you change what information people saw about candidates and how they saw it. Um, and so we started doing that. That became, you know, this research program we were working on our night times and our weekends because we were busy during the day doing our day jobs. Um, and about six months later, we ran this huge experiment with almost a thousand real people who'd applied for real jobs. And we were able to show that by changing the information that uh, assessors saw about candidates and the way they saw that information um, that we could massively reduce the risk of bias and also help them find people who are better fits for the job, um, which of course was this sort of really important, if you can prove that you can get both things simultaneously, then it's really hard to say it's not worth doing. Um, even though for me, the, the biggest driver really was the sort of removal of bias. So that was sort of the genesis story. Well, it's quite an impressive one. And to your point of whether or not it was naivete or audacity that led you to ask the question and act on it, I would say they could have been elements of it, but a large part of it was bravery. And I think in particular, the success of your work there leaned in, as I see it, correct me if I'm not clear, um, you were brave to actually take experience and apply scientific methodology to it versus, I mean, for years I've said in uh, this company, and my husband would say this even years before me, we, that was one of the things that we actually laughed about that we saw so in common, people make decisions emotionally. You can be as informed as you wish, but at some second. point you're making emotional decisions. You know, you're making, I mean, we can have all the data in front of us, but we'll vote from one very emotional place. And so that you took experience and laid science on top of it fascinated me. There's something else you did, and you can talk about that uh, if you choose, because I think it's important to our family to understand you're not just giving them a bit of textbook conversation. You actually lived through the experience, both in your company and through the process you did. Uh, please also, though, know that one of the things you did or you talked about that was important to me, and I'm inviting everybody, by the way, to visit your TEDx talk, okay? Um, you did talk, um, Kate, about how important, or should I say perchance unimportant, that 
coffee meeting is, that face-to-face -face meeting that, that lunch meeting people have in the process of interview. COVID taught us we weren't doing that anymore, nor did we need to work in the same way we did before. But the I but 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 the principles around that still remain for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so one of the studies that a bunch of economists did even tested, you know, this is so the kind of underlying insight here is we're human, right? And we we absorb the world uh through thousands of thousands of data points every day. Most of them we incorporate into our worldview completely unconsciously. And as a result of that, we acquire all kinds of perceptions of people that are built up off like very little information. And what researchers have been able to do is just show how meaningless some of the things that we internalize um, become. So one of the one of the one of the studies even looked at by putting real people, they sent real people into interviews with um, with real organizations that didn't know they were being evaluated and tested whether or not a man walking in with black shoes or brown shoes made a difference and found that it did. And I think we can all agree, like whether you wear black shoes or brown shoes. I mean, I'm trying to imagine there's probably a job where it makes a difference, but I'd say probably relatively few, me, um, you know, uh, what colour shoe you wear is actually shoes. <laughs> exactly maybe exactly that's right maybe there's tap dancing there's a particular kind of skew I don't know but but point being um, we're kind of always taking in all of this extra information and and exactly as you say you know interviews are a huge area where you're suddenly assailed with not only you know someone's background and what they're saying but what's their accent and how do they express themselves how do they comport themselves are they tall are they short are they round? Are they slender? Are they, what color is their skin? What, what gender are they? There's, you're actually, you suddenly have, plus all of the sort of, um, the, the sort of magic or not of that feeling of connection that you get with a person. Um, you know, meeting you, there's just an immediate connection to someone like you, but not everyone forges rapport as easily, right? Um, and so, and nor is everyone at them at their best in an interview setting. And so it's actually just this hugely information rich, but not necessarily signal rich. It could be noise rich setting. And so a lot of, um, a lot of what we were trying to do was sort of, yeah, separate the signal and the noise, um, and help organizations focus on the things that we know from research tend to be better predictors of like, is this a person a great fit for your organization? Are they going to stay? Are they going to thrive? Um, and, and less of the stuff that we think can get inadvertently in the way. Um, and I think as you're sort of alluding to, even, you know, the irony was when we decided to actually, you know, we sort of ran all of these experiments, proved that it worked, decided to quit our day jobs and, you know, try and make a go of it. Um, and I will say, you know, for anyone in the family who, who may be interested to start a business of their own, I'm sure many of them are because of the nature of their interest in in, in in listening to your podcast. I will say I very much consider myself to be an accidental entrepreneur. I never woke up in a mor in the morning thinking I'd love to found a business. I was very inexperienced in lots of parts of sales, marketing, product, engineering, all of those things and had to learn them on, on the job. But it also involved doing a lot of pitching to investors, which I know you know a lot about. Um, and, you know, that's a whole other area where um, inadvertent bias can find its way in. Um, so sort of going in as a, as a founder of a business um, and saying, hey, I'd love you to give me some money so that we can pursue this dream um, is a whole is, you know, analogous in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about how you went into uh, the business of the flight. So let me ask you this. 
Was the originating mission of that company one that continues to be the mission today? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, so applied's really all about um, making hire, um, hiring sort of faster, smarter and, and, and fairer. Um, and that's really still the main goal of applied. So uh, the company's still based out of London um, and uh, I ran it as CEO for five, six years and, and then stepped back um, and my head of product, Kiati Sundaram, um, is the CEO now and she's doing an exceptional job. Fantastic. Kate, you know there are many benefits to be gained via diversity in hiring and those are statistics that I typically love to share. I'd like you though to speak to how and why diverse perspectives are beneficial to anybody's organization. Large company, small company, industry agnostic. What are the aspects to this? Um, Even the quest maybe to the DE and I uh, that you think are so urgently in need of addressing? So I think you can come at this a lot of different ways. And I'm a bit of a pragmatist. Um, I think you can get there very... Step back, because I mentioned a, a term that I want us to be, make sure we're clear to the family about. Many of them are already clear, but things get used interchangeably. D-E-N-I is not diversity, equality, and inclusion is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And people sometimes get a little tense when you open the conversation of equity versus equality. So that I'm asking you about the value of it, I'd love you to explain the platform of it from which you're speaking first. You think that's Yeah, I, yeah I think that's absolutely right. So equity and equality, um, a lot of people as you, as you rightly say, they get a little tense about whether or not we're trying to say, you know, we're trying to hold some people back in order to pull, pull some people forward. And I think there's this beautiful um, sort of illustration um, that someone has done. Um, some of your family may have seen it, but I do think it's a beautiful illustration. And basically what it shows is some um, some young boys, actually in this particular illustration, it's a um, it's a cartoon. They're trying to watch a baseball game, I think it is, and there's a fence. Um, and they're at different heights. Uh, and the implication is they may be just different ages, you know, three brothers or whatever the case may be. Uh, and equality is the idea that everyone's standing on the ground and there's the, there's a fence. And so, you know, the tallest brother can see over the fence. The, the next one is sort of reaching a little bit to see and the smallest brother just has no hope of seeing the game. And equity is more the concept that you make it possible for all three of them to be able to see the game by changing the heights of the things that they get to stand on. Now, that's a, it's, a, it's a slight oversimplification, but the underlying concept is if we want to give people equal access um, to opportunities in the world, we have to acknowledge that not everyone is starting from the same starting point. And there's a variety of reasons, historic inequalities that drive that, but then there's a whole host of other things that come into play And so what we care about at Applied is really thinking about like what is the true levelling of that playing field such that everyone gets their full potential and their full opportunity. Um, And, you know, I think from... From our view, it's it's sort of this idea that like talent is evenly distributed across the population. Like I'd love someone to tell me about any true science that shows that there is intellect concentrated in one particular part of the demography. I've never seen any good evidence that that is true. It is evenly distributed. There's, we are all in the world 
um, capable of phenomenal things, but we know that opportunity is not evenly distributed. And and really what we want to be driving toward in a sort of fairly basic sense is this space where everyone has their opportunity to be their, their true highest potential selves. And we have to acknowledge that the world that we live in is designed. I think this is one of the things that behavioral science gave me as a tool that I didn't previously have, which is, you know, everything that we do every day is shaped by a host of things that we live with every day um, from small things like how technology is designed, as I spoke about earlier, to how our houses are designed, to where our cities are, to town planning, to the big things. And they all shape our understanding and our and constrain and open up different opportunities. And we have to acknowledge that in that design, we have an opportunity to design for greater equity um, or not. Um, and I think that one of the things that we haven't been as intentional about in the past is designing for the outcomes that we want. So that's kind of, you know, if we start from the position that it will be designed regardless of whether you intend it to be or not, you may as well be intentional about that and how do we kind of level that playing field. So that's sort of our philosophy, I guess, at Applied and hopefully that sort of um, unpacks a little bit exactly as you say, you know, DE&I has become quite politicised for better and for worse um, over recent years and, and I think there's actually a lot of common ground that most of us can agree with there. It's just that we haven't always found the right language for bringing everyone into that conversation, perhaps. I, I love that. And one thing that you did, uh, certainly within a hashtag from this podcast, is around designing for outcomes. Um, and those outcomes I'm sure you're speaking of are broader than the uh, bottom line profitability. Um, even as that is central and important to a business, um, yeah. I think that you also have to design for how you are going to take care of and how you are going to ensure the sustainability of the environments and the marketplaces that you want to grow in. And yeah. I think leads to that. Um, you know, actually, Kate, you may know this about me. Innovating and doing well by, while doing good are traits that I love. Um, what are you proudest of achieving in your career over the last 10 years? Oh, that implies JVH. Mind that. On, that, on that energy of I can do well and do good at the same time. I don't want to, I don't have to wait there to make an impact there. I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and maybe if I take a quick step back and answer the, your first question, actually, which I, I didn't do as well as I, I possibly could have, which is, you know, what is this business case for diversity? And, and as you rightly say, it's diversity, equity and inclusion because it's not sufficient to just have people of different colours, races, you know, genders and so forth in an organisation. They have to be truly included in the conversation um, and be given an opportunity to thrive in organisations. But the science around why that actually works um, is, is quite interesting. So maybe if you'll indulge me, I'll quickly explain why it is that we're such big believers that it's not just a moral good. Um, which obviously I think many people in the family believe it to be so, um, but it's actually just good business sense. Uh, so a lot of the research around diversity and inclusion has focused on how particularly different groups make decisions when they are either homogenous, so made up of people who are pretty much the same background, um, or heterogeneous, so more, um, more diverse. And some of the studies have sort of pointed to if you get a more heterogeneous group together, so a more diverse group together, the evidence seems to suggest that people work harder. And by that, I mean 
they tend to know unconsciously that they're less likely to share the same worldview as all the other people in that group. And that forces the brain into a higher state of problem solving. And so a lot of the evidence, um, a phenomenal researcher out of Columbia, Catherine Phillips, who's sadly no longer with us, did a lot of this research. And she found if you put people into groups that are, are more diverse and they tend to, and you give them more creative tasks or you give them more challenging innovation-based tasks and you ask them to come up with a, a creative solution to a problem. Some of them were even as simple as like design a building that's never been designed before and they're not even architects, right? You find that you get more creative ideas come out of the diverse group than from the homogenous group. And, and some of that is because people don't share the same assumptions about the world. And so they go, oh, that's interesting that your idea is that I think it would play out quite differently for my communities or my background, or that implies something quite different to me. And it's in that, it's in that kind of constructive discourse of a group that you actually get to better outcomes. So one area of the research is really around that, that kind of really, if we think about, you know, um, AI and robots um, will continue to take over the parts of our jobs that can be automated. And what we're going to be increasingly left with, um, at least in the parts of the world where, you know, our knowledge economy is the sort of big driver of the economy. Um, we're going to be left with the parts of the jobs that only humans can do. And that's, you know, these complex problem solving challenges and where creativity is a big part of that. And that's where diversity really pays dividends. But they've also shown in other research things that I think are interesting, like they've tested the diversity of a jury and a more diverse jury even remembers the facts of the case more accurately than a more homogenous jury. Again, this idea that, we're actually paying closer attention to our environment and, and we're working a little bit harder intellectually in that, in that type of setting. And so I think for a lot of organizations, that's where the gold lies. You know, you can, you can not be on board for whatever reason with the moral argument for, um, for greater diversity and equality, but I think you can get there on the basis that you get better group decision-making and you get better outcomes that last better. Um, so those are the sorts of things that I think, you know, organizations can really gain from. And, and now to come to, the, to this part, the part where we really share, which is, um, you know, again, I'm a bit of a pragmatist. I think, I think social change, uh, there are lots of ways to achieve social change. And, you know, so many of the people that um, you have spoken to on this podcast represent all sorts of journeys towards social change. And that's what makes your podcast so phenomenal. And, and I feel very honored to be a part of it. Um, for me, I feel like, you know, you can get strong stickiness in social change if you can find more than one reason why something should happen. And, and so this idea that actually nowadays I think we, we've got a much better understanding that you can achieve social or even environmental goods and it's also the best decision for a given business, then, you know, to me that just looks like a more robust likelihood of something happening. Um, and that's that's where I think the, the music um, really, really lives. Um, and so those are the sorts of problems I'm really interested to get to be a part of. I, I love it. And I can see how another level of or another phase of the work that you do can be getting to the leaf of it. And by that, I mean, Kate, and it was it just came to me as you were talking, you got to the root of it. You talked about the impact of equity, and I don't like to say equality versus equity so much as equality does not equal to equity, right? Um, the, 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 you, you talked about so much around 
how diversity and inclusion helps an organization in this instance, it can be a community or many things, right? But it helps an organization to develop and elevate well. That's the root of it. When I say I think you can do some tremendous work and I look forward to if you do it, around the leaf of it is that, and so once you've done this work here with the expectation of some predicted outcomes, now we get to the leaf of it because it becomes so much broader and so much more and differently uh, impactful than even you designed it. A lot of that through the age of digitization, AI, chat GPT are big discussions right now is just small parts with big impacts, of course, but small parts of what digitization and technology offers us. I mean, you think about it, Ozempic was designed just a very narrow look. Ozempic was designed as diabetes, right? A diabetes treatment. And now more people are taking it for weight management than for diabetes. Now, maybe that says something about our culture, but it also says something about, you know, the intentionality of how it was designed and how it's being used, you know? And so when you multiply that across anything, whether it's product or services, who you have in the room designing that, and you said to design toward outcomes, can be much more impactful if those people in that room are coming from all those places those leaves are going to go to. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that's an, a phenomenal example. I think, you know, we, we're designing and innovating faster than arguably we ever have before. And you mentioned earlier, you know, we've now got communities, we're speaking from other sides of the world right now, you know, and that's, that's enabled by technology. And, and so we've got this sort of, intensification of ideas flowing um, which just accelerates everything and that's of course where we're lucky um, with technology to be able to do amazing things but you also allude to you know there can be lots of unintended outcomes um, both positive and negative and having a more diverse set of people helps you to spot what those things may be and to spot the great opportunities that might come from hey you know actually have we ever thought about applying it in this other setting but also it might play out differently um, given what I know about the world. I imagine people I know and people I feel more aligned to may relate differently to this and it may play out this way. And it, it's that, it's that sort of like, it's a slightly trite phrase, but the sort of seeing around corners, mm -hmm. I think diversity helps us to do that a lot better and, and not fall into those sort of same traps. Plus, you know, on top of all of that, there's, you know, there's something to be gained um, from saying, you know, if technology is going to eat the world, as some people say, Let's make sure it's accessible to the whole world to use. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure some people in your family have seen this horrible video where someone sort of shows a, you know, one of those soap dispensing machines, which we've all become very accustomed to nowadays post COVID. Um, and they show basically two um, employees uh, uh, putting their hand underneath the soap dispenser and, and a person with, you know, light colored skin puts their hand under in the soap um, dispensers. And a person with darker skin puts their hand under and there's no soap and they sort of retest it and test it. And of course, the, the reason why was that actually the design of that soap dispenser machine used um, like light recognition and it used the difference in color from the floor to the, if there was something that changed in color, but the floor was dark. And so it was harder for that soap dispenser to pick up a, a darker skin person putting their hand under. And that's just such a like visceral example to me of like, Clearly no one on that design team for the soap dispenser 
was not white um, and no one thought to test with populations that were more diverse. And so, you know, those are the sorts of things designed by males and not females. (laughs) Indeed, indeed, of course. And there's some amazing researchers who've pointed to lots of different, lots of different safety things, or even most of our, of our health technology, of course, was tested on white male populations. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we've got a a lot of debt, I think, actually, in the way that we've designed the world. We haven't designed for everyone. Um, And there are a lot of opportunities, therefore, to, like, redesign the world to work for everyone. And and that's the sort of hopeful part. I love the redesign comment. And I don't know if this is your intention, nor if it is the direction one would automatically or... Not, not so automatically go you're kind of an out-of-the-box person so uh what <laughs> about that? let me just say oh i love that i love that what good is it stuck in the box right um and so i i'll say it this way i have a sister who has been diagnosed since she moved to california with crohn's disease while oh, she was i'm so sorry dog, she's living well and medicines okay. you know nobody wants it but she's living well with it but here's the point she went so many years, even after she did her own research and asked her doctor on the Southeast coast, uh, do I have Crohn's? And the doctor said, she's an engineer, okay? A educated woman. She asked the doctor, do I have Crohn's, Crohn's disease as a young adult woman? He said, no, that's not possible because you're not Jewish. They looked at treating her for different things. She came to visit me, subsequently stayed, went to a doctor out here, and he said, oh, my dear, you're not being treated well. You have Crohn's disease. She said, I thought so, but my doctor in Carolina told me it wasn't possible because I'm not Jewish. My rationale didn't fit with that. You know, my sister, before coming to California, had been laid on an operating table with a doctor, a physician coming out in Carolina, asking my mother and our family, my dad has since passed away, uh, you know, are we going to keep her on life support if it it looks like it's going to go there? We chose not to, not just from a spiritual place that we live, Kate, we chose not to because we weren't so certain that that was the issue with her since she had spoken so loudly to the family about it. Once she was able to leave that place and she came to California and she was then, I believe, properly diagnosed by someone who wasn't in the box and someone who had had experience with diverse and inclusive patient populations, she was able to get treatment that now she lives as freely physically as I do. Does she go in for her regular treatments? Absolutely she does. Does that medicine work on her? It does because it was tested on people like her as well or sickle cell, you know, how diverse, how, how really far away is sickle cell from, is it SACS or KSAC? You know, so I think, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's not just about how many of this population do we have based on the aggregate population. I think it's also about how well are we learning to live together and how much are we appreciating that one Communities are designed differently. They're no longer simply geographically based. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, you and I are part of a digital community. We've not been in the same room at the same time. And we've definitely been in the same place at the same time, digitally, you know? And I think also 
uh, Kate, and I love your, 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 your thought on this, that um, when you talked, I believe it was in your uh, TEDx talk, uh, you talked about how we look at designing for outcomes, and we mentioned that briefly here. I think the, 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 the reverse of that, how we look at those outcomes to learn what's next is really important. And that's where I'd love to see your work go, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I think we, um, if you start from the perspective, as I sort of alluded to earlier, that talent is distributed evenly, but opportunity is not, it suddenly gives you an opportunity to look at the world through a different lens and, and ask the question, there may be a thousand different reasons why someone wants to live a particular kind of life. But I think if you include in that, is it possible that they weren't given the opportunity but would like to live differently? And if and what does it look like? You can you can say to people, it might well be the case that not everyone wants to be the CEO of, you know, one of the world's biggest com companies. That's not everyone's life goal, and that's fine. <laughs> you know, that may not be an ideal life goal for most people. But that actually but if said they, that to us two weeks ago, when he was right. directing us to a place in a large building that was, you know, mostly no longer occupied. So we were trying to find our way to a particular office. And during the process, he had a chat with us and we were saying, wow, you could be the manager of this place. And he said, why would I want to be? I love what I'm doing now. And by the time I get to that tax bracket, I won't take home more than I do now. So I'm happy. <laughs> Indeed. Like, I think this is, you know, this is sort of where I think most of us would like to get to, which is that the world keeps open as many opportunities as as possible uh, and it's up to you to to kind of forge your own path and I think just removing any restriction you know maybe people listen to this and they think gosh that's a pipe dream and it probably is but I think it's a pipe dream worth you know having the audacity to hope for um, and that's kind of I, I guess where we come from um, at Applied and oh, for women were, that was a pipe dream for many years Right, exactly. And, and you know, we look back at some things in history um, and they seem so obvious that they changed, but they actually only changed because some people had that moment where they woke up and for whatever reason, the world just didn't feel inevitable to them. Um, and, and I would never want to put myself in, in, in the category of those people, but I think we're part of a movement. There are a lot of people who feel, who feel that and, and people in your family in various ways, I think are those people, um, you know, you all have an opportunity every day to be, uh, to sort of redesign the world around you, um, well, a little bit. Our family now, so you have to drop the why and say our family. Indeed. Um, you know, I feel very honored to be a part of this family. And, and I think the, yeah, I just, I just think, I mean, maybe to sort of, to jump a little bit ahead, again, I mean, maybe people think it's a little Pollyanna-ish, but such a tiny proportion of the world's population has the opportunity to choose how they spend their days. Mm -hmm. You know, we are part of a really tiny minority um, who've had that opportunity. You've you've come from a very different background to me and, and worked a lot harder to get to where you are um, than, than I had to. And there are a variety of reasons we, we all know for why that's true. But for those of us who have acquired that opportunity, um, I just think, you know, we only get to live once. My personal worldview is we only live once. Um, and, and so if you have this rare opportunity, um, then use that time 
wisely. And that doesn't mean you have to share my particular passion or your passion for diversity, equity, inclusion, or for a sort of or social good. But however you want to use that time, know that it is super precious. Um, and where your hours get spent is yeah. a very precious good yeah, and I, a commodity. I'm not sure if you watch nor care to see Downton Abbey. I did because, as I mentioned, <laughs> my husband's Yorkshire-born, so you know, <laughs> we watched. Um, but in it, uh, the, the, the matriarch of the family in one of the episodes is sitting at the table um, in, the, in, in, in the estate uh, room, and some Americans, I believe, some film people were coming over and they were allowing them to film. You know how those films had to figure out a way to sustain themselves after the uh, First World War, and, um, and once taxation and stuff started to happen. Um, and she's seated next to an American and the American speaks about what they were gonna do over the weekend. And she asks him, what my dear is a weekend? There are people who don't understand what a weekend is. You know, not literally, but figuratively speaking because their circumstances are so different from those who do. There are people who don't appreciate the value of water because they don't get up early in the morning and carry it from a well to their family every day. Yeah. And people are doing that today. Um, you talked about achieving a place where you can, to some degree, choose what your day is like. Is that part of success? How do you find success, define success in your life, Kate? I think I've been really lucky, honestly, to be able to do that most of my career. Um, I've had the sort of financial means to choose work that matters to me. Um, and, you know, to be remunerated for it. But I've also taken several years off when I worked for the UN. I did that um, as a volunteer uh, for a year with a bit of support from the Australian government for living expenses, which a lot of people don't have the capacity to do. So I, I'm, I really acknowledge that privilege um, that I've had to kind of pursue my passions um, in work. Um, so, yeah, I think success is continuing to do that. Um, and I think success as well is being able to work with phenomenal people. You've done this. You've created, you've helped create organisations filled with people doing their life's work. Um, and what I'm now doing, uh, I'm on the board of Applied, but I've now joined actually our investor, our main investor um, at Applied. So they're called Blackbird. When I moved back to Australia, um, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do next. And and you've been an entrepreneur much longer than I was, um, but it's it's hard thinking about what you would do after this baby. I mean, it sounds ludicrous to talk about a business as a baby, maybe. Um, but for me, it was the sort of thing I woke up and thought about all day, every day um, for, for many years and it still remain extremely passionate about it. So thinking about what I wanted to do next was a non-trivial task. But I, you sort of alluded to this earlier where it was sort of doing good while doing well. Um, and, you know, I feel like there's a huge opportunity in the technology sector to support the next wave of innovation in the direction of, of higher impact um, businesses where those two things go together. And so I've been very lucky um, to come back to Australia and actually head up Impact and ESG at Blackbird. So working with really early stage companies, we've got over a hundred companies in our portfolio um, with a, a whole host of issues. Blackbird. Talk a little bit more sure. about Blackbird and what you're doing there. Sure. So Blackbird um, is a venture capital fund based in uh, Australia and New Zealand, and we invest in 
what we say are wild hearts with the wildest of ideas right at the beginning. So we invest in very early stage companies, you know, sometimes as small as three, four people when they've got a wild idea that's worth pursuing and, and we give them um, equity and, and also advice and support along the way to help grow their businesses. And then hopefully as they grow and scale, we continue to support them along the way. Uh, so we, as I said earlier, we've got over a hundred companies that we've supported over the last 10 years um, and uh, one of our biggest companies is a company called Canva, which some some in the family may have have used. So a sort of big design tech company, but are many other companies beyond. Um, and so our kind of main game is how do we think about what the next generation of founders looks like and what are the next generation of businesses um, and what do we want them to look like? So we're not an explicit you know, impact fund, but a lot of what we do actually so far has been informed by our values and our values. One of our values as a fund is we want to make our kids proud. Um, and so a lot of the investments that we've made have had a lens um, of what that really looks like. You know, what are the kinds of things that we think we would want our kids using and thriving with um, in decades to come. And so I'm lucky to work with, with this phenomenal team. Um, there's nothing more inspiring. I know you do a bunch of, of work with entrepreneurs yourself, um, handing on your expertise. There's nothing more inspiring than, than being around people who are reimagining this future. You know, they've got a version of the world that they'd love to bring into the, into being. Um, and they've got the energy and they've got the, you know, uh, resilience and the ability to get up when even things look hard and things haven't gone right. And, you know, the software's not working and customers aren't, you know, doing what you expect them to do. Um, it's a it's a tough slog, as you know, extremely well being an entrepreneur, um, but it's a really energizing job. So I get the opportunity to work with a lot of our founders on how they're building those businesses. Um, and one of the thematic areas that I work on with them is how they build social or environmental impact into into their businesses and how they think about sort of scaling to be the best businesses to work in um, in the world. Because we also know um, that, you know, there's a constant war on talent and, you know, to get the best people in the world to want to come and work with you, you've got to give them a great reason to do so. And one of the things that inspires me the most, I don't know how you feel about this, is just this younger population that is just, you know, there's a... Um, there's an unrelentless, unrelenting sort of hope and also high expectations that this younger population have of the world. You know, they've seen those of us who've come before them not solve the problems that they feel need desperately to be solved. And they really want to get up every day and have the things they believe in show up in their work in a way that I think we didn't consider work 50 years ago to be a place where you actualized um your passions it was it was maybe it, it served a different goal whereas younger people these days they want to see those two things marry a bit more together and I think that's really exciting yeah and work isn't always where you go is what you do you know uh for them um are there any particular traits you look for in founders of these companies themselves I know you're looking at the ideas and it sounds as though uh, nothing is outrageous. It just may be out of the line of, you know, your target. Uh, but are there any particular traits of founders you look for at Blackbird? Yeah, I mean, we've got some pretty exceptional founders. We've, we've invested in everything from space tech companies um, through to software, through to people redesigning, you know, robots to help surgeons, you know, uh, remotely 
change outcomes for people that they can't even be in the same place as. So sort of expanding access. So there's a lot of exciting technology companies in there. I'd say some of the traits are curiosity. Uh, so are you always looking for the next answer? Have you got the capacity to rethink and undo your assumptions about the world? Because we know as entrepreneurs, sometimes you don't get it right the first time and you need to have a low enough ego to ask the question, is there another way I could think about this? So I think one of them is a sort of, you know, unrelenting curiosity. Another is that resilience because, you know, I mean, at the moment we're living through a macroeconomic environment that's much tougher than and then a couple of years ago, it's a harder fundraising environment. It's harder to find customers. And so that sort of resilience to keep pursuing things, even when they even when they get hard and that sort of um, tenacity, I think, is definitely a, a character trait we go for. And then definitely one of the traits is just do you see the world a bit differently, which comes back to these ideas, but do you have the courage to pursue um, those big ideas in a, in a new kind of way because those are also the sorts of traits that draw people great talent to you you filled hundreds of thousands of jobs in your career through your businesses and you know that you know people are drawn to people who have passion um, and so I think some of those traits also need to sort of to sort of be there in the in the get-go and then the final one might just be product obsession we believe like the best products in the world have these people who are obsessed with making them excellent um and so that sort of product obsession is always a part of it as well well wow you're looking for uh in many ways the traits that attracted me to you so i'm really happy with your permission to be your new auntie i just love what you're doing i love Please. <laughs> here. uh what's next for you and what's next for blackbird before we go to four for four well i think for me um actually next for me is a is a new adventure i'm uh, six months pregnant at the moment um and, and i'm about to have a baby on my own which is um going to be an adventure unto itself so hopefully some of my experiences as a founder will help me navigate some of that. I don't know um, exactly what's what's translatable there. So that's that's going to be the sort of near term um, piece is actually taking a little bit of time off and um, you know learning what it's like to be a mum, which I'm very fortunate um, to have the opportunity to, to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Exactly. Uh, so um, it was many years in the making and, and not an easy road as it is in for many people. And so I feel very fortunate. So that's the sort of immediate term on the on the, the job front, though. You know, I've just I feel like I've just scratched the surface of what this this opportunity to work in venture looks like. Um, and I'm really, really excited to, to continue to work with the team and all of our founders on what the future holds. Um, I think we're at a really interesting crossroads. Uh, on a lot of this sort of area around ESG. And I know, it, again, it gets quite politicised, but I think if we come back to the part of it that feels real to me is just this idea of, I don't think any of us wants to live in a climate crisis. We all want to live in a world that gives greater opportunity to more people. And, and we have an opportunity through business to try and solve for some of those challenges. And so why don't we give it a go? Um, and I think there's a lot of exciting stuff that organizations can do in that space. And I'm excited to work with them to do so. Um, so that that's kind of what I'll come back to at Blackbird is, is continuing to focus on how early stage technology companies can be part of these solutions. I love so much what you're saying and where you're headed. We are going to do four for four. Before we do it, let me just say this, Kate. Please note everything that you learned and you have given and continue to give 
to being a mom to businesses does transfer to your children. So many people <laughs> are better moms of their work than they are of their children. I'm enthusiastic for you and your family. Thank you. And please, <laughs> well, as my new auntie, I will be calling on you for much, much yeah, advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let me know when the due date is. Um, and then, I will. Please also thank your mom and dad because the influence that they've had on you and the ability for them to uh, nurture a human such as you who didn't have to go the road that you've gone, except you did have to go it from in here. That's powerful. And I love being a part of your family as much as you are now of ours. Shall we go four for four? Sure. Okay, four questions, four answers. The first for four, right? One for four. Yep. You get to host a dinner. You can have any four people from any time in history to present there. Who's going to be at your table? And they must be human. Okay, so, I mean, excellent question. When I was thinking about this, I actually came up with four people. They all happen to be women, um, but bear with me. None of them are with us and none of them I've known. So uh, I think I would love to have a dinner with Emmeline Pankhurst, who was a famous British suffragette. I have her picture um, on my wall I, and it's huge. It's oh, huge. I love that. But Amazing. Uh-huh, Miss Pankhurst. Amazing. Yes. She so I think um, I think she it would be took the tube down her throat for our right to vote. She did. Um, she did many things for our right to vote. A lot of things very controversially. Um, and I think having her in at a dinner table with Rosa Parks would be exceptional. Just to have two women who had the courage of their convictions. And I think, you know, obviously their stories Parks? themselves. You said Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks. Yeah. Okay, the reason I asked um, you is because I thought I heard you say that. I didn't clearly, as you stated, we are across the ocean from each other, although we're in the same ruling space, um, because we're rewriting the history books here in the U.S. in some of our states. And I just received an email this morning that showed how we identified Rosa Parks in the original history book that mentioned her, which was as a woman who refused to follow the law at the time that stated a black person had to get out of their seat if a white person wanted that seat. Then it got rewritten to, she was asked to get out of her seat and she didn't get out of her seat. And then the third iteration was, she chose to get out of her seat. I mean, she chose not to get out of her seat when asked. And so, uh, you know, I think that um, we have to be very thoughtful. Historically, we used to say that the winners of wars wrote history. I think, you know, the winners of ballots do too. And regardless of what your perspective is of whether the first, you know, history book was the better or the second uh, history, third history book, if second or third is the better, I think it's important to make note that that's the record we keep for the generations to come. Absolutely. And the framing of it, even small changes in the way that we frame those stories make a huge difference to how we interpret them. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Um, and I think the two that, I, I mean, it's so obvious why they're phenomenally interesting women, but I think what I would love to ask them is, it, was it obvious to them that they were world changing? Um, I'm guessing that they would be they would say no, but the the world gets changed by people in sometimes small acts and sometimes big. And I think it would be a phenomenal 
understand, you know, how they understood themselves at that time. And then the two people I'd love to put with them actually would be my two great grandmothers who I didn't know. Um, my um, both of whom were so one I'm named after, and she was very very close to my mother, which was why I, I have her name. Um, and the other is my is my father's um, grandmother, who was a bit of a renegade in her own time. She swore, she drank, she she shot, she um, smoked, um, but she was quite a um, you know she she really bucked the the social convention of its time, and she got married very late, had children very late. Um, and she chose to work. And I think, you know, having that group of women in at one place um, would be really fascinating. So those would be my four. It's in your DNA, kid. And by the way, your name for your grandmother, my daughter is a Kate. Oh, well, that's an extra honor for me. I'll enjoy introducing the two of you. Shall we go two for four? I'd love that. Yes, that would be great. Okay, so what music are you listening to right now and why and not podcast artists musical artists yes i'm i'd love that my I, for many years i worked in a cd store which for those in the family who are on the younger end you might not even know what a cd is but uh it was a, it was a record store so um music has always been a big part of my life so at the moment um i've actually been listening to two First Nations artists, Australian First Nations artists, one called Bujara, and he's incredible. He's actually just released a track, I think, with Ed Sheeran, so everyone should check it out. Spell it's a beautiful it. track. Spell it. Spell it. Uh, B-U-D-J-E-R-A-H, Bujara. Um, he's he's going to be big. I think people should look out for him. And another young woman who's only put out a small EP called Kian, um, K-E-E uh, apostrophe A-H-N, um, and she's sort of a soul singer and it's absolutely beautiful music. Um, so I'm listening to them. Um, I was recently in New Zealand and happened upon a busker in well in Queenstown um, of a young uh, classical composer who makes his own music called Luke uh, Gadjuice. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his surname, but it's G-A-J-D-U-S and you can find him on Spotify and it's beautiful. And it turns out, we were we were captivated. We were sort of standing there watching him play this piano. He'd like wheeled down to the um, to the water for like half an hour. And it turns out he has a degree, I think, in music therapy. And you can really tell it's just absolutely beautiful classical music. And then someone I'm always listening to a lot is Christine and the Queens. Um, they're a um, non-binary uh, performer out of France, um, and they just sing just phenomenal pop uh, music with a really great message. I think a lot of that's going to be played in the nursery as well. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> okay, Kate, let's go three for four. What four books do you advise to our family as a good read and why? So uh, on the fiction side, I think one of my favorite books of all time is A Suitable Boy um, by Vikram Seth. Uh, it's sometimes most famously known as I think the longest book written in English or something, or at least it was, but don't let that put you off. It's just a totally captivating many decade long um, saga set in India and Pakistan during the partition. Um, and it just does this, just he's, he's originally a poet and he does this beautiful job of pulling together, you know, a whole set of families experiences. And so you sort of see the world unfold through 20 different people's, 
experiences, um, plus a really important time in India and Pakistani history. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Um, I recently read a book last year, I read a book called Still Life by Sarah Winman, which I just thought was absolutely beautiful. Um, it's set in Europe um, just after the war. Uh, it's It tells a story that I think brings together you know, beautiful life histories in a really, in a beautiful way. Um, I think I also read recently Leonardo da Vinci, which is a, um, just a, uh, a, a biography by Walter Isaacson about his life. Um, and I think there's so much that we can take away from Leonardo's life. Obviously we know a lot about his inventions, but a lot of my understandings of how he came to those ideas were totally wrong. And he was a really much more complex character than I think any of us believed. He was openly gay uh, at the time, which was, of course, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He, he lived a really interesting life, but he also procrastinated a lot. And he, you know, he actually wasn't, um, he wasn't quite the innovator that I expected him to be, but in many ways, much more impressive. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really inspiring. And then finally, um, we spoke about her earlier, but Iris Bonet is one of my great mentors and advisors and friends. And she wrote a book a couple of years ago called um, What Works? Gender Equality by Design, which brings together the science around um, uh, sort of all of the stuff we've talked about today um, and how you can make organisations much um, you know, much fairer and work better for, for all people by applying even basic traits of behavioural science. Um, and she's actually writing a updated version of it, I think. Um, so I think anyone who's interested in the sorts of topics that we've talked about today, it's a very accessible book um, and it's designed for real people in the real world, including people organising, you know, leaders of organisations. She is an incredible, incredible author and an even more spectacular human being. I, I pinch myself whenever I'm about to go into the room and be in her presence because I'm like, okay, there is a God, there is a God. And, and <laughs> I'm certain she feels the same way about you. I'll be texting I, I, her immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shall we do four for four? Great. Okay. Four pieces of advice you think relevant, helpful to our family and why. And if it's advice that was shared uh, by someone else to you, directly or indirectly, please give homage to the author of the advice. Absolutely. Um, so the first one is have a committee of people that you trust in your life that you can go to with the things that feel hard. And I'm very lucky to have lots of people in my life I can go to, but I have one particular group. It's a WhatsApp group who's which has the name who run the world. And yes, it is a group of women um, that I have met. Um, and it's just this exceptional community where everything from life to work to ethical dilemmas to ridiculous things that we've seen on the internet goes on there. But the part that really is powerful is in the areas of life where you need someone to champion you on a hard day, that's a, it's a group of people you can chuck the situation into and just say, like, how would you deal with this? And that to me has been, you know, such a huge part of, of coping with various challenges and thinking about various solutions. And it's, an, it's a completely free place for all of us to be exactly who we are. Um, and and, and they cheer you on, they're not necessarily a cheerleading squad because they'll get you straight too, right? Exactly. And they're people who will tell, tell it to you straight. 
they'll say they'll hold your feet to the fire and they they'll say kate is this really you do you think could you think about it another way that's exactly right it's there's a there's a really subtle but important difference between people who just support everything that you would say and people who support you to be the best version of yourself Mm -hmm. so that would probably be be one of them um another which i've actually just learned through my time studying behavioral science um but and so in in many respects i would probably credit danny kahneman who's a um, nobel laureate and has done exceptional things for that area of research that sort of proves that in life actually we tend to regret the things we don't do more than the things that we do it sounds maybe obvious to say it out loud but i've had to remind myself of that sometimes when you think when risk aversion kicks in and you think oh what happens if it doesn't go well or if it doesn't work or whatever the case may be and even just knowing actually that the science is that the things that we that the things that stay with us as regrets are often the actions we don't take rather than the actions that we do so you know um, that's I think maybe one of the yeah, things that I've interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going to work to ensure that the young entrepreneur group who were present to a conversation I had last evening with them at North Carolina a and State University I do right that's my university <laughs> um, I'm going to make sure they hear this podcast and that they hear you say that that's something I share with them I encourage them look guys you can do all the planning and everything but it has been said that people nearing what they think is the end of this life uh, will say they more regret what they didn't do than what they did. Yeah. I think that's beautiful, Kate. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, if, yeah, it, it's, and it's more than a motherhood. It's actually backed up by science. So if, you know, there are some people there that are not naturally inclined, maybe that will help that's them get over I'm the line. That's why I'm loving that you said it. That's why I'm loving <laughs> that you said it. <laughs> Um, so maybe related to that actually is a third one. That's a piece of advice that frankly, I have to remind myself of every day. It's like, it's advice. I don't think I've ever totally nailed, but it's not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, you know, well, repeat that. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. So yeah, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, so don't worry about things being perfect because often that's the reason why we don't get started. Um, and many of us share these traits, you know, we, we're tough on ourselves and we think they need to, everything needs to be wonderful, but actually sometimes that's just the, the fastest path to procrastination. Um, and so I'm always working on, you know, being willing to put things out there to the world, to colleagues, to friends, to whatever that are imperfect, but you learn and you iterate and you improve. Um, and, you know, to your entrepreneurs group, that's obviously something that they're having to learn the hard way because you can't let perfection get in the way of just making some form of progress um so that's probably one I need to remind myself of every day <laughs> to be honest um but I do think the best learning comes when you're sort of willing to put yourself out there a little bit that would be probably my third and then my fourth I, I guess I sort of alluded to earlier which is we only get one life or in in my worldview we only get one life for, for people in our community that may be different but um if we are in this you know, very rare group of people in the world who have this huge privilege of choosing how we spend our days, spend them wisely, you know, spend them on things that ignite you and that give you passion Um, and things that, you know, I kind of apply a little bit of a, when I'm 90, should I be lucky to be 90 and sitting on a rocking chair? What are the things that are likely to matter to me at that point? Or a rocket. 
or a rocket indeed you know who knows rocking chairs will probably be you know be like i'll be explaining what a rocking chair is much like i'm currently explaining what a cd is who knows but um but yeah i guess sort of using using the clarity of thought that comes from imagine yourself deep into the future and what's likely to matter to you and it i use that sometimes because i can get caught up um, as probably other people do too but i certainly get caught up in the detail of life sometimes and let that that get in the way of the of the things that really matter okay oh wow thank you so so much you know you referenced more than once uh that um you believe this is the only life we get let me tell you we're aligned on that as well i just happen to think this is the first chapter or third chapter or a chapter of one life i believe we're all part of one universe and we're sharing from one mind and um um, oh, what was his name, Kate, from Los Angeles, who said it much better, uh, much more succinctly when he was encouraging us all. He asked the question, why can't we all just, you know, get along, you know? I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Actually, I don't need, I don't like to mention people without giving them credit. So give me a moment and yeah. I'm, I'm just going to Google who he is. Uh, who said, why can't we all get along? He was in LA, Rodney King. <laughs> Rodney King, yeah. He, um, pretty special man. Yeah, yeah. So you're a pretty special lady. I love, just love everything about you. And I love being in your world. Welcome to mine, Kate. We'll see each other and be able to smell the new baby one day soon. And I just thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's truly an honor and to be part of your community. Ooh, and your new auntie. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. I will probably take you up on that offer. <laughs> do, 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 Kate. Do, Kate. Thank you.